Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. With David Canfield. Hello. And joining us for the first and certainly not the last time, our new Hollywood correspondent, Natalie Jarvey. Hi. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for letting us kind of throw you right onto the podcast um, because you have joined Vanity Fair at a time of great upheaval in the streaming service world, which is something you know a whole lot about. So um, you're going to come on and uh, tell us the, the deal with HBO Max in a minute. So we're very grateful. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the rest of the show, we have festival news to talk about still. We have awards news to talk about. And we're going to uh, look ahead toward festival season a little bit more now that the lineups are more or less complete and make uh, some boldish predictions about maybe who we'll see at the Oscars in six months because we love making bold predictions that turn out to be dramatically wrong months later. Um, but first, Natalie, let's turn back to you. Uh, I'd have wanted to have you on to talk about HBO Max for a while now because, you know, it's been a few weeks since the great Twitter meltdown that had me, like, looking up to see if they had canceled HBO Max entirely, and they hadn't. Just people were writing obituaries for it way too early. Um, but there is just still this constant drip of news of them removing Sesame Street episodes from the platform and canceling various programming areas. Um, at this point now, as we record this, the week of August 23rd, is the HBO Max chaos just still ongoing? Is it still as um, as unpredictable for their future as it was a few weeks ago? Yeah, well, you know, HBO Max really helped spice up a uh, otherwise slow August. Um, <laughs> and I think it will continue, maybe in a slow drip. They seem to be continuing to remove shows from the platform. And it, it's kind of happening on their own whim, I think. So it's it's a little unclear when it will stop and um, what point things will kind of return to normal. I mean, I think anyone who looks at the financials can see like, oh, they needed to, to cut corners. They don't want to lay a ton of people off, although they have laid people off. So like, why not remove shows that are underperforming and are costing them some amount of money? But I think the question for those of us who aren't maybe financial experts is like, is all this bad PR worth it? What do you think, Natalie? It's a really good question because you're right. These are shows that people weren't watching. They weren't talking about. But the removal of these shows from the platform is 
making people very upset and anxious about it. And in some cases, I think drumming up some excitement for things like vinyl, uh, which, you know, didn't have a big (laughs) audience when it actually was airing. David Saslov, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, is in a really tough spot. He wants to show Hollywood that he is a friend to them, that he is going to be a good partner to them in his new role. But this is not helping him in his relationships with showrunners, with creators. It's making them very anxious about the future of of their shows on, on a major streaming platform. Yeah, I mean, David and Rebecca, you and I are on, like, you know, phone calls with the reps who are behind all these awards movies at this point. And I think that gives us a really clear insight into when you have an awards campaign. Like, that's all about showing money and support for filmmakers. And it just feels like all this news out of HBO Max and Warner's in the last couple weeks has been the opposite. Do you you guys see that hurting them in the future, too? I'm curious to talk to people at the Emmys, I think. That'll be one of the first opportunities where a lot of people with uh, HBO Max shows will be in the room. Um, I feel like a lot of creatives are probably taking a sort of wait and see how this all plays out, because right now it does feel like so much is kind of up in the air. But I'm sure a lot of creatives are pausing because, you know, they like the Batgirl uh, directors, they don't they don't have any of the footage themselves anymore. It's just, it's all lost to them. So I'm sure that feels very bad for creatives. Oh, that's a, what a nightmare. So dark. <laughs> I, I wonder how other streamers might respond to your question, Katie. I was, I paid attention to HBO Max taking off a movie like Charm City Kings, which was a pretty well-received movie out of Sundance that HBO Max acquired for a straight-to-streaming release. Didn't get a lot of fanfare and was very quietly removed. Well, I guess loudly because of the noise around what happened. But (laughs) I don't know that that many people would have noticed that it was removed from the site, if not for so many things being removed. And, you know, we just talked about it last week. But I do think about the the new Hulu strategy, for example, picking up with Searchlight, picking up uh, some well-received movies out of festivals, putting them straight on the platform, and them seemingly not finding a very large audience. And what happens after that? And... It's a model that I think we've been questioning on this podcast since it really Mm -hmm. gained steam, you know, last couple of years. And this is the first indication to me of a studio really saying, well, this didn't work. (laughs) And yeah, it it was an avenue for movies that premiered at festivals that were not big awards plays, big starry movies, or in the case of Leo Grand with Emma Thompson, a potential (laughs) awards movie that still went that direction uh, to to just find distribution. And I, I wonder how strong of an of an avenue that's going to look like going forward. I mean, when you think in the big picture, it's a relatively new idea that you would make something and it would be available forever. You know, the, however, what percentage of movies made before 1950 are just gone. So you wonder if David Zaslav is just like, ah, I'm, I'm doing what Cecil B. DeMille did and getting rid of everything that doesn't work. Um, but I think our expectations are maybe permanently changed, knowing of, you know, the infinite space of the Internet, that these things should be able to be available and and. and be able to be found by people. What's so interesting is that at the same time that David Zaslav has caused some consternation in Hollywood by removing shows from and movies from HBO Max, he has also said that he's recommitting to theatrical releases. He is in some ways taking the company back to this place of really focusing on 
building an audience in theaters and and giving a movie the best possible release it can have. So it will be interesting to see if that message is enough to warm the creative community up to Warner Brothers, especially after, you know, they they piss a lot of people off after uh, they put all of their movies day and date on HBO Max. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you wonder if, like, the release of Dune 2, whenever that happens, is there a chance to be like, okay, well, we fixed it. And we know that we (laughs) messed up with the first half, but um, now we're back. Uh, To Natalie's point, I I remember interviewing Barry Levinson last year for a TV movie feature I wrote uh, for the magazine. King of the TV movie. King of the TV movie. And he repeatedly made the argument that he had absolutely no avenue to make theatricals anymore. And, you know, you can debate... (laughs) the quality trajectory of his features over over time but I thought it was very interesting that he got a theatrical commitment from Warner Brothers Discovery for a Robert De Niro movie uh in the Zaslav era and that's one of his first big movies and it was I think I believe it was said to be a real um, passionate pick for him specifically so that's also an indication of a changing tide from where we were even just a year ago yeah, I think that movie in particular was a subject in Matt Bellany's newsletter a little while ago about how David Zaslav spends a lot of time in the Hamptons, and there were some uh, people who <laughs> he knows say. personally uh, <laughs> who might have been involved in that. That it, it, I mean, again, like like Natalie was saying, in terms of talent relationships, like David Zaslav is not a guy who has operated in that world for a long time, and this is what he's learning. And um, I mean, Natalie, from what you know about reporting on Hollywood, like is just managing people's egos such a big part of the job that he's still trying to figure out. It is, I would argue, 90% of the job, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that is something he's going to have to navigate. And and you're right, he has a lot of friends in Hollywood, but he's not been a leader of a major Hollywood movie studio before. And, and we certainly saw that uh, Jason Kyler, who was in the role previously, you know, had had a hard time managing those relationships. So I think everyone's egos are a little bit tender right now. And He's going to have to work through that. Now, I will point out that he hired two very respected uh, mm-hmm. uh, executives to run the Warner Brothers film studio that I think will go a long way in helping him uh, lure talent and make Warner Brothers a, a friendly place for for big filmmakers to bring their movies. Do you want to just name those executives real quick? Yeah, uh, Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi. And they are people who know how to do that ego massaging, even if their CEO doesn't. Yeah, they were most recently at MGM, which got acquired by Amazon, and they left and and headed over to Warner Brothers. So, you know, they've been in this business for a long time and and have their own great set of relationships that I'm sure they will be leveraging and, and, you know, working to bring talent to Warner Brothers. So our colleague and frequent guest, uh, Chris Murphy, wrote a piece last week, basically like why of all the streaming services are people so worked up about HBO Max in particular? And Richard, you, like Chris, live in New York and don't necessarily care about the inner workings of Hollywood corporations. Um, But I feel like you also kind of get the idea that HBO Max is something that people really attach themselves to. Um, Do you you have a kind of a theory about why why it's become such a big deal? Well, they paid me. So I don't know about Chris, but uh, I'm pretty rich because of that. Um, no, you made I, Teen I, Titans, actually, which is yeah. one of the things they are promoting. I mean, I think there's obviously just a long existing HBO brand loyalty. 
plus the Warner Brothers catalog bolstered that considerably. Um, but I think it's also, you look at just what the streamer was putting out, and a lot of it was pretty good. Um, and even if it wasn't to everyone's taste, like, I think I wrote like an, a really <laughs> negative review of that show Generation, but when that was announced as one of the things that was getting pulled, there were all the people on Twitter who were like, not that show, you know? And um, I, I think that one of the things that, that concerns me about the Zaslav era is, um, and maybe I'm overthinking it, is I don't know what his politics are. I don't know what kind of content he's interested in. And the one of the things about the streaming boom was that it allowed a lot more room for different kinds of stories to be told. Mm-hmm. And I think that is reflected on HBO Max's, you know, lineup as of six weeks ago or eight weeks ago. Um, and if there's going to be fewer things, what are those things going to be? Do we lose shows that are more diverse or from different perspectives? Um, there are certain shows that are still on there that people are really into that are, you know, um, so that's hopeful. But um, I don't know. I just think that, like, there's a little bit of a fear that, yes, on the one side, it's good th- in theory, to go back to a theatrical model to sort of shrink this industry down to a more manageable scale where things can actually get seen because they, ha- you know, they can have the attention on them. But on the flip side of that, with fewer work, you know, do we just revert back to older models of, you know, perspective? And I, I don't know. And I think HBO Max had figured that calculus out before this shift. And so there's a lot of questioning about like what the future looks like. Also for the real snobs, like I'm just scrolling through it on my phone right now. It has Jane Campion's early movie and Angel at My Table. It has the 400 Blows. It has this Ely Kazan movie, America, America. Like in terms of classic movies or just really good movies, especially as I'm sure we've discussed Netflix, like really underinvesting in licensing old films. There's just really nothing like it. Yeah, I was reading a, a New Yorker piece about Ernst Lubitsch, um, just kind of a reconsideration of his career, I think maybe responding to a, a book about it. And there was an interesting quote for him where he was talking to a screenwriter who's also a playwright. He's like, but your plays will be remembered as literature. Movies, those are those will all disappear in 10 years. You know, mm-hmm. they'll just go into a studio vault somewhere and no one will ever see them again. Kind of to your point, Katie, that, we, that this idea that things last forever, that we have access to them forever is relatively new. Um, so in some ways you're like, well, we're just going back to what it used to be like. But you can't really unring that bell. And people panicking over vinyl or generation or other shows that I'd never heard of is, yes, about those shows specifically. But it's also like, what could be next? And are we entering a point where we can't reliably have access to things? And you're like, well, you could if you had video stores again or, or <laughs> whatever. But, um, you know, the idea that we all of a sudden have to pay a la carte individually for things again to access them, because a lot of this stuff is still available. You know, a lot of it isn't. But... I don't know. I, I just think I, I have some trepidation about what this is, This is, but I also, as an, a person older than a lot of people I see being upset about this, I'm like, well, but yeah, you know, we, we, we made do. We rented. <laughs> Libraries have movies still. I think you're right, though, Richard. This is happening at a time where we're seeing this kind of pullback in streaming across the board with, you know, Netflix making fewer things. And um, even though its budget is continuing to grow, it's maybe fewer, bigger things. Uh, And there's a big question, I think, right now in the industry about what happens to these other smaller streaming services if companies like Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery can't make the economics of streaming work. And so you're right that it's not just about these individual titles. It's about What's happening? We've left the boom times of streaming and what's next? And have we all become accustomed to a reality 
that's not going to stay that way. And and things might change going forward. And I, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I would assume we have more TV writers employed than has ever existed in the industry right now. And yeah. with that comes obviously salary for those writers, but commissions for agents, for managers, for you know whoever else. And like, if that huge sector and relatively new sector of the economy is about to dry up, what suffers collaterally because of that? Hmm. Um, I want to throw out a listener question about like looking forward for Warner Brothers Discovery. Like, is it possible that some of these shows that got removed might come back once the like HBO Discovery platform, whatever it's going to be called, actually comes? Is Natalie, is there a reason to think that might happen? It's a really interesting question because I, I do think what's happened in, in the removal of some of the episodes of television and these movies is that it has created some kind of PR for them and people might actually want to check them out, which would maybe mean that they're not as low performing uh, as they once were. Uh, so that's that's definitely an option. I think the question is that Warner Brothers Discovery in some cases pulled these titles off their platform and then took a tax write-off on them. Um, and it's a complicated type of Hollywood math that they did to basically not have to record the the losses associated with, you know, licensing these titles. And and so the question is, can they put them back on and still have taken that tax write-off? And and I don't know the answer to that. I'm not I'm not a uh tax uh expert. <laughs> Next week we'll have a whole tax segment on the show <laughs> to explain it all. That is why I'm a journalist. Um <laughs> but uh so it seems like there could be a scenario in which, you know, these things do come back eventually. I mean, Netflix does that. All these streaming services, you know, rotate out their library. And and HBO Max has made that argument with the Sesame Street episodes that came off. You know, they put out a statement last week that they never had all of the episodes of Sesame Street, that they've always kind of cycled them through. And, you know, Disney pioneered this with The Vault years ago. So mm-hmm. uh, there is certainly a model for helping drum up excitement and interest in titles uh, by kind of taking them away and then bringing them back. But it remains to be seen whether that's really what's in the cards for this future combined HBO Max Discovery Plus streaming service, which will launch next year. Natalie, do you know anything about the, the like the residual thing? Because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a Sydney Sweeney interview where she said, I can't afford to take any time off because, you know, actors don't get paid like they used to. You don't get residuals like you would for network television or even cable television when you're on a streaming thing. Um, and yet here we have Warner Brothers executives saying part of this decision making is because we're trying to cut residual costs. So were uh, are, were there if something just is sitting on HBO Max and you know some people are watching it but very few like that's still costing Warner Brothers money? Yeah, so there's a distinction between a show like Euphoria, which is a, a newer show that presumably it was always intended for HBO Max. So what happens is is when a, a company buys a show like Euphoria they are essentially going to buy out what's called the back end, which is all those residual points. So instead of paying those out when a show goes into syndication or gets sold internationally, they just say, we're going to give you a premium on the cost of the show. And, you know, that's that's what everyone is getting paid. You're not getting anything more. Shows that were made before streaming, they, they didn't do that. So that's why when Friends left Netflix and went to Warner Brothers, it, it was such a big deal. Warner Brothers actually had to bid for that title to air on HBO Max, to stream on HBO Max, even though it was a Warner Brothers television show, 
HBO Max had to license the streaming rights to that. And so they paid a lot of money for Friends. And that did create a a scenario in which the the people who had back-end points on Friends got a nice payday. Uh, so basically in the new age of streaming, that doesn't happen anymore. And it is much harder to get really, really rich making TV today because of that shift in how people are getting paid. But Warner Brothers has a huge back catalog. And and yes, HBO Max was paying a lot of money to their uh, colleagues just uh, a little farther away on the lot, uh, but still was was paying money to uh, have the right to stream those shows on their service. So if we want to get rich in TV, we seem to travel back in time. I, I can work on that. Yeah. Um, well, Natalie, thank you for explaining all this to us. We will sh- certainly have you back because I don't think we're done with uh, news about streaming services doing strange things. Um, so thank you, as always, for your guidance. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great first uh, appearance, hopefully. okay so we're gonna jump right into festival season for a second because there is news about one of the major award shows and i think really encouraging news that raises a lot of questions um rebecca you wrote about the huge change coming at the indie spirits you want to tell us about it yeah so as they announced on tuesday they are doing away with their gendered acting categories so they're just going to have one lead performance category, one supporting performance category, um, and a new breakthrough performance category. So, you know, a, a couple of the smaller, uh, not smaller, the Grammys are not small, but a couple of the other awards shows <laughs> have done this. But, you know, it is something we haven't seen the major, major film awards shows do yet. So this is definitely the biggest move in that space and I think a really exciting change. I mean, the Independent Spirit Awards are obviously known for being very inclusive. They highlight lower budget films into obviously independent film, and and they've always been that sort of welcoming space. So I think this is definitely the right move for them. They did it at the Gotham Awards. uh, I I think last year was the first year that they did it. And wouldn't you know, there happened to be ties. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't both have a tie? Yeah, both both had a tie. And so you got four speeches, four celebrity, you know, moments, which I'm fine with. You know, I I think that that, that combining the categories, it makes sense. Um, But like, I don't want to see fewer acceptance speeches, you know, uh, so mm-hmm. hopefully they can figure out a way to be like, the the best two performances of the year are, I, I know that might dim the accomplishment some, but I would be happy with that. Well, that's the huge challenge with figuring, I mean, there's there's a couple challenges, and I want to talk about how these awards are voted on, but no one wants fewer acting winners. Like, you know that the Oscars are never going to do something that would have two acting winners only. And I don't, like, the ties is one way to do it, but that's the Gotham's because they're voted on by juries, and they can kind of do whatever they want with it. The more I try to think about how to solve this problem, because, you know, we don't, I think we would all agree, like, we don't want non- non-binary performers to have to, like, sort themselves into a category. But how do you do that without, you know, losing half of the awards that you would give out? Yep. Um, Rebecca, so you, in your piece, you did cover a little bit how the indie spirit voting process, and especially for nominations, is really different from the Oscars and the SAGs. Can you just explain a little bit about why it, it makes something like this more possible? Yeah, so the Independent Spirit Awards decide their nominees through a committee of smaller voters. So it's not everyone uh, who's in the film independent group voting. And so they actually meet and discuss who's going to be nominated, you know, more as a a jury format. So obviously that gives them the opportunity to make sure we're not going to end up with like 
all uh, male nominees in this new format that they have or, uh, you know, so they can really just keep an eye on on what this group ends up being and, and, and make sure it really is inclusive. Whereas if you look at the SAG Awards or the uh, even the Academy, well, let's take the Academy. So the Academy's acting nominations are voted on by the acting branch, which is the largest branch of the Academy. So they're just doing regular voting. They're not meeting and deciding who's going to be nominated. So there would be a chance that these groups wouldn't end up being inclusive. You know, they could be all one gender. So it's a, it's obviously a, a little bit more difficult to make that sort of shift uh, with the SAG Awards or the Academy. But I, I think it's exactly what you're saying, Katie. It's It's how do we do this and still make sure enough performances are being highlighted every year and there are enough winners. And it's definitely growing pains, I, w- I would describe it. I've definitely seen sentiments from actors that are like, if the Academy went single category, a woman would never win again. Mm. Yeah. You know, yes. uh, which is a cynical outlook. Hear, yeah. But it's also like, I believe it based on the Academy's history and oftentimes present. Well, I think you just look at last year. Would Jessica Chastain have beat Will Smith? Almost certainly not. And, you know, if we looked at those categories, none of the Best Actress nominees were from a Best Picture nominee. uh, And that is far more common with the Best Actress race and the Best Actor race, uh, as we know. Yeah, it's a a real problem. And the spirits have always been more inclusive, not just in terms of recognizing more non-white actors and smaller budget films, but also just more films. Like, you won't see one movie get like five or six acting nominations like the Oscars can tend to do where, you know, Power of the Dog is well liked by the acting branch. And so they go down the line and nominate basically every eligible actor. The Spirits, you know, gave The Lost Daughter Best Picture, but I believe they did not even nominate Olivia Coleman. So it's it's an it's a different kind of system that allows for more kinds of work to be recognized. And therefore, exactly to Rebecca's point, when you'd make a rule change like this, you're not really restricting the winner circle as much as you would be with the Academy, because there's already a system in place that's been established to recognize a lot of different kinds of work and movies and people. <laughs> I feel like this is a like a small-c conservative stance that I don't think has needs to win out, but there's something that I like about the long history of the Academy and having the categories be the same and having someone win the same award that Betty Davis won. And I imagine there's a lot of Academy members who feel that way. And I don't think that's more important than including people and making them feel, you know, recognized and honored. But I wouldn't want to lose that. And I I do feel like there are ways to keep that somehow and to still be able to include more people. Well, it could be best Betty Davis performance. And then you just give it to the person (laughs) who most exemplified that sort of ineffable quality. You know, yeah. Do, does anyone agree with me there that there's there's something to the history? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I, I see the I see the the case for continuity, you know, and for history. Um, a lot of that history is troubled, you know, obviously, and that's something that obviously the academy has been trying to reckon with uh, in recent years. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the answer is I just don't know. I mean, look, you know, you and I, all of us talk about all this stuff all the time. And something that I'm sure we've all heard at various points is, why do you care about the Oscars? They're not actually awarding the best films of the year or the best performances of the year. And it's like, we know that. The Oscars are <laughs> like, if, you know, if my dad had his way, the Patriots would win the Super Bowl every year. But they don't. But he still <laughs> watches it, you know. Like, it's not about your your favorite. It's a it's a sport, sort of. It's, it's 
And I think because of that, that leads to us to have a sense of like, oh, I love that movie. It's not an Oscar movie. It's not going to win. It's not going to get a Best Picture nomination. Mm -hmm. But maybe, the you know, like we understand that there are compromises. And until those compromises are better understood and better addressed, like, I just, you know, again, to go back to what I originally said, like, I just, and I'm not alone in this, like, the Academy is not ready for that kind of huge paradigm shift. You know, I wish that they were, and I wish that they had come, would come up with an elegant solution for it. Maybe they will, because it does need to, you know, there are, there should not be non-binary, non-binary actors who are forcing themselves into gendered categories that they don't identify with. And yet, like, I, I, I don't know what the perfect solution would be. And it, because it's an imperfect institution. Richard, it, it, you know, I think, we're talking so much about the Academy. I do want to bring up that um, the new Academy CEO, Bill Kramer, did a talk with a, a roundtable with a few journalists on Monday that we were able to post about on on today, Thursday. Um, and he, you know, did he was asked about uh, changing those categories and said that there's no concrete plans to do that now. But what I thought was interesting is he did have he was able to sort of tease the uh, Oscar show a little bit more than I expected for this um, early in the process, and also he's just brand new in the position, so he hmm. did confirm that they are very close to finding producers and already in talks with a host, and that there will be a host this year, and that they are potentially looking for producers to sign a multi-year contract, which traditionally the producers of the Oscars have been people who don't have experience producing producing a live television show and they only come in for one year, which a lot of people have seen as uh, problematic. So, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of discussions going on already about the show. This Mr. Kramer is giving me a lot of hope, I have to say. Yeah. He really does seem to be addressing a lot of the big concerns. He's, he's approached a lot of the big concerns in a way that feels very um, direct and very honest. I think a lot of the frustrations at the Academy, and you could just look at how that Will Smith saga unfurled. Obviously, that was a very exceptional event, but the the communications blunders, the lack of seeming to understand how people were receiving them was a big part of why that blew up the way it did. And um, that's happened with so many things like the taking off the categories from the live show and things like that. And it does feel like he's saying a lot of the right things specifically in response to what people have been so upset about. And I'm very hopeful that he's going to turn turn that show around. Yeah. yeah, I don't even think we talked about what he said about the, the categories not being on the show, which honestly, like, the greatest gift of the Academy was that the slap overshadowed that entirely and we forgot about what a debacle that was. <laughs> um, and he basically said, no, we're not ever doing that again, um, which I think was just, it was just such relief to hear someone just say it out loud really early on, not make us wonder if somehow they thought it was still a good idea. Yeah, he was also asked about, um, you know, the the slap and 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 was literally like, we are looking forward, <laughs> like we are moving beyond this. So I think we're all yeah. sort of ready for that. Um, but I, I agree. I, I feel very optimistic about, you know, what he's been doing so far and, and his perspective and, and excitement for bringing about more change to the Academy, but in a way that, uh, you know, feels just that it still honors what the Academy is known for. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, before we go back to talking about festival lineups, again, because they really are on the horizon, we got a listener question that I wanted to throw to you guys. I haven't prepared you for this. So you have to tell me if you have a good answer for it. <laughs> um, the Jesse says, is Harry Styles' campaign off to a rough start with these comments around sexuality and queerness? Will, Acad- will the Academy notice or is it just Twitter ranting? Worst possible start. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Richard, do you want to summarize what he said exactly? Yeah, he did an interview. uh, Who was it with? with, Was it with GQ? Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, excuse me. Um, Sorry, I almost besmirched a Condé brand. Um, uh, (laughs) But um, basically, he was talking about My Policeman, I think, more particularly in like the gay sex scenes in that film. And he was saying like, you know, so often all you see is just two guys in bed, but we tried to make it more tender, just like kind of kissing. And it's like, actually the opposite is true. Like, like <laughs> you don't really see sex, you know, between two men uh, in like mainstream film very often, if ever. Um, and it kind of all was, you know, framed as like Harry Styles, you know, has been questioning his sexuality or, or exploring his sexuality and all this stuff, which is kind of he's been beating that drum for a while. We have seen no receipts of any <laughs> real exploration beyond some clothing choices and and maybe a moment in a music video or something. But um, I, think, I think a flag or two has been brought out on stage. I'd say many, many yeah. fashion choices. Yeah, many fashion choices. <laughs> the, a, a consistent fashion choice over the past few years. Um, Fair. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, the blowback online is basically like, oh, brother, here we go again. Like another kind of queer baiting kind of thing. And this is, you know, this is coming from someone who had been or is maybe still like kind of embraced by I would say the gay community the queer community mm-hmm. you know in some ways because he seemed to be thinking in the right way and sort of you know open-minded about things and now it's just like how much of this is just performance and this you know a month or t- uh, really less than a month before his big gay drama premieres at Toronto like yikes like the, like maybe the the interview should have been held or maybe he just should have been more thoughtful about what he was saying because oftentimes some of those quotes you're like I, I honestly don't know what world you're talking about Harry mm. it it was so wrong-headed that I, I was pretty shocked that he thought to say that you know these are the kinds of issues that you'd think he was prepping for because he is a non-queer identifying at this point actor playing this part it's a hot topic you know you're going to be asked about it and yeah I mean Richard basically said it all. It's just a completely inaccurate picture of the state of gay cinema. And I'm not really sure where that came from. My disagreement is I don't know that the Academy will care. I mean, yeah, there, I just, I struggle to see the Academy looking at that kind of situation as a whole. There are certainly members who will, um, looking at the situation and, and evaluating it. Um, if he really is that good and if they really deem him worthy of, of consideration for a best actor nomination, which obviously remains to be seen, but I, I don't have too much faith in the Academy taking that kind of stand, upset as I personally was by really that whole interview. <laughs> well, except that when you consider that with the new Academy rules, every member has to watch God's Own Country every day in the lead up <laughs> to the Oscars. And so they yeah. might be actually sick of sex. You Thank know, God on for that rule. Um, so, so Harry was right to parachute in and fix the problem. <laughs> um, Rebecca, I know you don't want to spoil the movie too much, but you you are the only one of who... You are the only one of us who has seen My Policeman. Do you have any, can you weigh in at all about what Harry's on about? I don't want to spoil the movie. You know, we have a first look that people can uh, read and see on our site. And he is, you know, very much the lead. It is very much a, a, a gay love story. So, uh, of course, these questions were going to come up to him. And I think we have to remember that for every single one of these films in the awards race, everyone is thinking about 
crisis management from the <laughs> yep. start of the campaigns. And they're giving those that messaging to their stars who they know are going to have to answer these questions over and over again for the next few months. And I think maybe the message he was given uh, just got a little convoluted in the way he should have said it. And, you know, it's his first Oscar campaign, so maybe he's coming from the music world. He wasn't exactly aware of how this all goes down. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting campaign for him. Who knows how much he'll actually do moving forward uh, when it comes to press. But I think we just have to remember that, you know, there's a lot of messaging going on. I think we're going to this isn't the first this isn't the last controversy we're going to see about several of these films, I feel like. So um, I don't I don't know. Maybe other actors will have bigger controversies and then he'll uh, rise up. But I think he does have a little work to do to, to stay in the conversation. Is this the first one? I feel like I should keep a doc running of like what are our tempests and teapots that have happened over the course of award season. We've definitely we've all heard some whispers, but I don't think the other major ones have have hit the hit the uh, public yet. Yeah, there was the Till trailer, mm-hmm. and I think there's going to be a lot of debate around just the nature of that movie. Um, obviously, nobody has seen it, so I would call it a little premature. But you know, it, it's brewing for a few movies already, just in terms of. What stories are being told? Who is telling them? Et cetera, et cetera. So, on the other side of that, the the trailer for the inspection just dropped. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. As of recording, and you know that's this A twenty four movie about a black gay young guy who joins the Marines. Uh, in it, from the trailer, suggests like in order to prove something or to feel that his life is of some weight and value. Um, and that seems much more like sourced in lived experience maybe not for star jeremy pope necessarily although maybe but for the filmmakers and and you know i know that that's getting a big rollout from a24 in a way that we none of us i don't think were really anticipating just a few months ago mm-hmm. um so that could i think in a, in a in a righteous way suck up some of this oxygen in a, you know in a positive sense like okay here's a good depiction of the queer experience on film in the fall at a festival um and that's not to say that my policeman can't also fare well i mean i haven't seen the movie i'm excited to but you know i i would maybe maybe harry has bravely you know bared his throat for the 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 cancel wolves <laughs> to 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 better ease that that path for other people <laughs> <laughs> he he walked so Jeremy Pope could fly through yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should talk a little bit about that trailer because it dropped as we record this. And it's a super traditional trailer for A24. I think like yeah. it's got like stirring music and like heartfelt scenes. But I, I'm, I'm wondering if the movie is going to be similar to that or maybe more surprising. And also, I know we said it when the film was first announced, but Gabrielle Union Oscar campaign. I would love mm-hmm. to see it. And she stands out in that trailer. She does. She really does. I'm I'm really excited for this movie. Uh, we've talked about the rollout strategy, which is uh, really interesting and smart. It, it definitely felt like it was going for that moonlight target uh, in the trailer a little bit. Yes. And to your point about A24, Katie. Well, uh, who, and like who, w- like uh, veteran actresses getting nominated for playing difficult mothers. Yes, <laughs> uh, definitely. There's the Naomi Harris to Gabriel Union uh, through line there. <laughs> and yeah, it, it is, it is uh, from what we know, drawn from the director's personal experience. And... I hope it's a movie that really resonates. It seems like it's one that A24 really believes in, and they know what they're doing over there, so that's usually half the battle. The music in the trailer gives me pause, but I was talking to a friend about that this morning, and he was like, yeah, but that's just marketing. I, I, he was like, I, I'm holding out hope that it's a more nuanced, subtler movie than than that that sort of big, like high-prestige studio drama music suggests. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I watched it back to back with the trailer for Jazzman's Blues, the Tyler Perry movie that's also coming to TIFF, which is um, like had similar music, but like all the dialogue like matched up with all of the kind of high drama elements of it. Um, and I felt like that was an interesting compare and contrast of like mm-hmm. what's just marketing and what is maybe the spirit of the movie. Um, I keep promising we're going to make all these big predictions about the award season to come based on festival season, and we keep running out of time, which is a good thing because we have a lot to talk about. But before we end up, I want to just, like, put some pins down for each of us personally. I was going to have us all, like, predict full Best Actor, Best Actress lineups, but let's limit it a little bit. I want everyone to name, like, one person, director or actor or costume designer or whatever, who they are either hoping to pop or expecting to pop from the festivals, and in a month they're going to be saying, oh, yes, this person's going to be nominated no matter what. Um, I can go first unless if no one else has someone immediately comes to mind. Go, Katie, go. All right, I'm going to take a gimme, which is Brendan Fraser, who we've talked about, um, but he was announced this year or this week as the recipient of, a, of an award at TIFF, um, which we talked about those tribute awards just being a really strong precursor. Um, and I think we've all had our eye on the whale for a really long time. Um, it's still relatively under wraps. There's really only one image out from it. Um, but I think there's uh, all that potential seems to still be bearing out. So um, everyone keep their eye on him. Who wants to go next? I got mine. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick Daniel Jimenez Caucho, who is the star of Inuritu's film Bardo. No one has seen this movie in full yet, but um, he is very much the lead. He's an actor who's well-known in Mexico. He's worked with Coran. He's worked with Guillermo del Toro. Um, But this story is very much um, centered on his character. And if we know anything about Inuritu is... He puts his lead actors through the ringer and often gets them Oscars for it. You know, we're talking Michael Keaton, Birdman, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Revenant. So I think even if he isn't a known name in the States yet, um, I think he is someone that we should all learn his name because I feel like if this movie works as I think it will, he'll be someone we'll all be talking about. It's also just not been that long since two Mexican actresses who weren't that familiar to American audiences both got nominated for Roma. So the... um the presence there. Yeah, and Netflix knows how to run those campaigns. Yeah. Well, we both just picked movies that are at Venice, so we'll learn about those very soon. Uh, David, you next. I'll go further down the line uh, and say Daniel Deadweiler for Till. The trailer, I think, showcases a pretty um, powerful breakout performance, uh, teases, I should say. And I thought she was brilliant in Station Eleven and uh, really deserves that kind of showcase. So I'm excited to see what people think of it. But I think it's, yeah, it seems like it's destined to be a big moment for her. And everyone should listen to your interview with her from this podcast a few months ago um, that I think if you're not a fan of hers yet, that interview will make you a fan because she's so fun to listen to. Yeah, she is. All right, Richard, you close us out. Put your pen on one person. Well, I've already mentioned Dolly DeLeon from The Triangle of Sadness, which has already premiered, but um, it's going to have a fall festival run, and I'm hoping that she pops from that. But um, in, in keeping with David and Rebecca's Daniel, Danielle thing, I don't even love Daniel Craig in Knives Out, but it would be kind of fun if Glass Onion's good to see an actor who is much more versatile than James Bond would suggest. If you've ever seen him on stage, like he's an incredible mm-hmm. stage actor. Um, he's been just great in in, uh, in things, you know, kind of varied genre that hasn't gotten a ton of attention. I just think it would be fun if Daniel Craig managed a supporting actor nomination or win for um, the Knives Out sequel because he's more of a journeyman actor than you would think for someone who's been playing James Bond for the past 15 years. Yeah, that first look that uh, Netflix ran themselves um, yesterday as we record this, uh, it didn't reveal a whole lot, but just those still images, it got me really excited for this movie. (laughs) Kate Hudson's hair alone. Let's go. 
Katie, can you change your answer to the Daniels? So we're just very confused. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have all the hope in the world for the Daniels, but they feel like, um, you know, we are we already know the deal with them. They're not the the wild swing that yeah, we're they're not the fall festival debut. Yeah. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week as the rush to festival season continues. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. And I'm actually going to tell you to follow us elsewhere on Twitter. We have an account called Ed that's at HWD, where it's kind of awards insider in general. Um, we're all still there, just kind of a more catch-all place for everything that we're up to. Follow us there. Or on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 718-550-2059. Hopefully we'll really be able to share a lot with you there as uh, festival coverage starts. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best thing to say when all of your Oscar predictions turn out to be wrong goes to Rebecca Ford. We are looking forward. 